0: Hi, everyone, this is Dr. Laura Bobalt with OncoHealth, and you are listening to PTCE Pharmacy Connect. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to PTCE's Pharmacy Connect a podcast focused on continuing education created by pharmacists for pharmacists. PTCE is the leader in pharmacy and managed care education. In these episodes, listeners will be presented with the most recent clinical updates and strategies for implementing into practice. And now, here's our host and founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri.
1: This is the PTCE Pharmacy Connect Podcast. My name's Todd Urey, founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I'm thrilled to have PTCE and the crew back for another podcast we can dive into and really get some interesting information. And if you want, turn it into continuing education for yourself. I'm excited to welcome back Dr. Lara Babbols, one of my favorite co-hosts on the PTCE Pharmacy Connect. Just always brings a lot of great energy, um, and and what pharmacists are capable of doing. The role of the pharmacist is changing; it's expanding. It's exciting to talk with pharmacists that are innovative here. With that, Dr. Lara Babbols, you are the senior vice president of clinical strategy and growth at Onco Health in Plantation, Florida. Um, and you'll be leading today's incredible discussion on desmoid tumors and how treatment options are selected. Laura, it's all yours.
0: Thank you so much, Todd. Always an absolute pleasure to get to work with you. And today, I'm also pleased to introduce our faculty. We have Christy Harris, PharmD, COP and Fellow of HOPA. She's a clinical pharmacy specialist at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and also the associate professor at Massachusetts College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. And today, she's here with us to discuss desmoid tumors and address clinical and financial burden associated with these unique rare tumors. So Chrissy, thank you so much for being here. Tell us a little bit about yourself and especially your practice with desmoid tumor patients.
2: Hello, Laura. Um, good to be here. Um, I've been an oncology pharmacy specialist for over 20 years now, um, and I've spent the last 15 years in a multidisciplinary sarcoma clinic. So as a sarcoma specialty center, we see a large number of different sarcoma subtypes, uh, many of which are quite rare um, and are involved in many of the phase one and two clinical trials for agents used in this population.
0: Wonderful, Christy. And I hear desmoid tumors Being that they're a rare disease, they are benign tumors, can you teach us a little bit more about what really is a desmoid tumor and how does it affect a patient's quality of life?
2: All right. So desmoid tumors are a subtype of soft tissue sarcoma. Sarcomas as a whole are derived from connective tissue, um, which is going to lead to the development of your bone, skeletal, smooth muscle, et cetera. Uh, Most cancers that you see and talk about uh, on a day-to-day basis are carcinomas, um, or you may have some brain tumors, but sarcomas is this small, really rare, makes only up about 1% of all cancers in the U.S., and then desmoid tumors is a rare subtype, so it makes up only about 0.03%, which is only about 900 people in the U.S. each year. Um, Desmoid tumors are actually benign tumors. Um, meaning they do not metastasize and grow very slowly compared to other cancers. So while most desmoid tumors are not life-threatening, they can impact the patient's quality of life quite a bit. Um, And desmoid tumors can appear in the extremities and thoracic wall, also occur in the abdomen and head and neck region, So there can be an increased risk of death in some patients, very small number of patients due to the potential organ infiltration, compression of blood vessels. Um, So while they are a benign tumor, they're not exactly benign. Um, You can't forget they still have this uh, life-threatening potential in certain patients. In general, patients with desmoid tumors can experience many symptoms, especially pain, as well as functional deficits that can restrict their mobility or activity. Um, And considering that the peak incidence of this cancer occurs between the ages of 30 and 40 years, you can imagine how this can have a significant impact on quality of life, on their earning potential, all of that.
0: I could only imagine. But what about risk factors related to desmoid tumors? And then I'm also curious, as an oncology pharmacist, I'm saying, okay, I have this cancer patient, now what molecular tests do I need to run? What biomarkers am I looking for in this unique rare tumor type? Tell me a little bit more about that.
2: So desmoid tumors, similar to many sarcomas, do not really have any preventable risk uh, factors. Um, As I mentioned, they do occur in younger people, most commonly around 30 to 40 years of age. It is also more likely to occur in women with about two thirds of all desmoid tumors occurring in them. Um, And one of the risk factors is actually estrogen exposure. And we know that desmoid tumors have been known to develop and or grow during pregnancy. Some will shrink at the time of menopause um, and they may be affected by by exogenous estrogen such as contraceptives. The other major risk factor is what we call familial adenomatous polyposis or FAP. Um, This is a genetic syndrome that's most often seen in patients with a really high risk of colon cancer. Um, They tend to develop hundreds to thousands of polyps in the colon, making removal of an individual polyp impossible. And this leads to almost 100% risk of developing colon cancer by the age of about 40 to 45 years. Um, The cause is a germline mutation of the APC gene, um, which is also called the adenomatous polyposis coli gene. Um, Patients with this germline APC mutation have about an 800 to 1,000 time greater risk of developing a desmoid tumor. And it often presents about 10 years earlier than our sporadic type of desmoid tumor. Um, The APC gene mutation only accounts for about five to 10% of all desmoids, um, but you can see an increased risk of death in these patients especially. Um, There is, a besides the APC uh, gene, gene mutation, there's also another mutation. This accounts for about 85 to 90% of desmoids. And this is a somatic mutation in the beta catenin or beta catenin, said both ways, gene, which causes nuclear accumulation of the beta catenin protein. Um, this is called the, and it's just a bunch of letters, CTNNB1 mutation. Um, so mutation analysis should be done on all desmoid tumor biopsies to determine if there is is a mutation present, which should occur in almost all of them. Um, Only a a small percentage of desmoids will not have any mutations. If the CTNNB1, the more common one, is present, then you do not need to go any farther because the APC and the CTNNB1 mutations are mutually exclusive. However, if you don't have the more common uh, CTNNB1 present, then you really have to do further testing to um, determine if APC mutation is present. Because if that is the case, um, then germline analysis needs to be done to determine whether they carry this mutation, which is highly hereditary. And that has implications for their risk of colon cancer as well as the risks for any siblings or children.
0: That's really important information to know. And wild that desmoid tumors are so somatic or genetic mutational driven tumors. Blows my mind. So in oncology, in our world, we love our NCCN guidelines, National Comprehensive Cancer Network guidelines. We also have ASCO guidelines. But given desmoid tumors, are so rare, what is your source of truth, Christy, when you're going to look to determine what therapy I'm going to recommend for my patient with a desmoid tumor, what guidelines do you turn to for your source of truth and what treatment regimens are commonly recommended? Well,
2: so we do have the NCCM guidelines, although it's within the soft tissue sarcoma uh, guidelines and it's only a a few number of pages uh, in there. Um, It has one category recommendation and then just several options listed as well, but that's about all they they do. Um, However, we do have the Desmoid Tumor Working Group consensus guidelines, and the working group is made up of researchers, clinicians, and patient advocacy groups in multiple countries and continents, Um, and their consensus guidelines go through the different options for therapy, discuss benefits and risks of each. Um, They were last updated in 2020, and we know that they met this summer, so they may update update their guidelines before uh, the end of the year, but we're not sure. Um, there is no standard of care for the treatment of desmoid tumors. Um, as with most solid tumors, we usually think of surgery as our first-line option. Um, however, that has really changed for desmoid tumors in the past 10 or so years. Um, desmoid tumors can often recur multiple times, often in the same location, despite how well the resection was done. You know, There are negative margins, but they still recur. And they have found out that in many desmoid tumors, there's no difference in event-free survival in patients who underwent what we call active surveillance and those who underwent surgery. And depending on the tumor location, some actually had a better event-free survival if they held off and didn't have surgery. Um, and this benefit can seen, be can be seen ten to three, two to three years out. Um, going up to, they've even did studies and gone even eight years out and found that that's usually the case. Um, Also, about 20% of desmoid tumors will spontaneously regress, which is really unusual and is kind of rare, Um, but active surveillance has really become the standard um, where the patient has regular surveillance scans every three to six months, depending on tumor features and aggressiveness that uh, is seen in pathology, um, with the ability to begin therapy if there's significant growth or if the patient becomes symptomatic due to their tumor. It is now known that abdominal surgery itself can increase the chances of developing another desmoid tumor in the abdomen. Um, and as I said earlier, desmoid tumors like to recur in the same location repeatedly. You can imagine if you have a desmoid tumor in the mesentery of the bowel, repeated resections will continuously take out more and more of the bowel until the patient really just has short gut syndrome. Um, or a patient with a chest wall tumor near the shoulder will begin to lose more and more range of motion and function. Um, so there are only so many resections you can do at the same location without really affecting patient's quality of life. Because of this, surgery is usually not considered in most patients in the beginning, or even at the time of progression or symptoms developing, regardless of where it's located in the body. We are are utilizing systemic therapy more now to try to halt the growth, potentially shrink the desmoid tumors before committing to resections. Of course, if the patient is symptomatic, they have pain, et cetera, and a surgeon that is skilled in the area of desmoids thinks it can be resected cleanly, then that may be the best way to go. But this is where having a good multidisciplinary oncology team who treats many desmoid tumors can really benefit patients.
0: Absolutely. And a team with pharmacists such as yourself, I imagine, that have experience with these patients and can see those patients in which that surgery might be too debilitating. So in that scenario where you might avoid that surgery for your desmoid tumor patient, can you discuss for me some of the systemic therapies that are used in this setting?
2: So historically, we relied heavily on cytotoxic chemotherapy, as that was all we really had. And we used low-dose weekly therapy, um, remember, this is a slow growing tumor. So, you know, you're trying our cytotoxic chemo is hitting rapidly dividing cells. Um, so, you know, you're looking at um, this low weekly giving um, providing some benefit. And they'll use methotrexate and Veneral bean, or sometimes they'll use Dinblastine instead. Um, It works well and has less long-term adverse effects, such as loss of fertility. So that has been one of the primary therapies, especially in younger patients. Um, It has provided a progression-free survival of something like 7 to 12 years in some patients. However, you're treated for a year continuously, which has its own limitations when you consider the population we are treating. Um, So not always the best uh, way to go. We've also used pegylated liposomal doxorubicin, um, doxorubicin has remained the most effective agent for sarcomas in general, um, but the pegylation allows for better uptake into the cells and decreased toxicity um, and may be better for this slow-growing tumor like a desmoid. The issue of main concern has always been this resistance to giving cytotoxic chemotherapy to otherwise young, healthy people with many years of life left in which to potentially develop long-term toxicities, such as infertility, cardiac conditions, or secondary cancers. So that's always been our concern. We now have our first targeted agent that has shown benefit in the treatment of desmoid tumors. So very excited about this. Um, serafinib is a multi-kinase inhibitor. Many know them from different cancers. It affects signaling in the VEGF1, 2, and 3, the PDGFR alpha, the C-Kit, the RAF, MET pathways, So it's really hitting a lot of different things. In a phase three trial where they did a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study, I think it was in like 87 patients, serafinib was shown to provide progression-free survival at one in two years. This was our first large study that actually proved a benefit over placebo in desmoid tumors. However, you can imagine that being able to take uh, pills every day rather than coming into the clinic every week could be a major selling point to certain patients. Um, serafinib has become a category one recommendation per the guidelines, uh, although it does not have the FDA indication um, specifically. The dose of Serafinib is 400 milligrams daily, which is only half of what is given in other cancers. Um, and so it's fairly well tolerated. foot syndrome was an issue, um, as were like skin reactions, diarrhea, and some hypertension all of which we can usually work with to diminish their impact on the patient's quality of life. Other targeted therapies we have tried are imatinib and pazopanib. There are some phase two studies only, but they are listed in the guidelines as possibilities in the treatment of desmoid tumors. We've tried to use anti-estrogens, such as the selective estrogen receptor modulators, tamoxifen or trimethane, due to that association with estrogen and tumor growth, remember that we talked about earlier. They've been used alone or with NSAIDs, as they thought that desmoid tumors, it was seen that they overexpressed cyclooxygenase two. However, in this line of therapy is really not recommended due to lack of evidence or efficacy in adults. Another class of drugs that are of extreme interest are the gamma secretase inhibitors. Um, This mechanism is kind of like a friend of a friend helping out kind of scenario. We know that the mutations found that CTNNB1 and APC both result in activation of the WNT pathway. Um, And so there's this overlap and crosstalk between this pathway and this notch activation. And so gamma secretase inhibitors are potent modulators of
0: that notch. Now that we know a bit about the mechanism of action, let's elaborate a bit more on the potential use of these therapies. One gamma-secretase inhibitor we have a lot of hope for is neogastastat, which was approved in November 2023 for adult patients with progressing desmoid tumors who require systemic therapy. It is an oral therapy. It's been shown in a phase three double-blind placebo-controlled study to decrease the risk of progression by 71%. Could you give us more of the clinical data behind this approval?
2: Um, patients are still on therapy within the study, so we do not know at this time. length of time it will stop progression of the desmoid, but it's looking very promising. The most common adverse effects seen with this agent are diarrhea, hypophosphatemia, rash, stomatitis, a little bit of alopecia. Most of these uh, developed in the first cycle and most could be ameliorated with supportive care. Um, Of note, there there was some ovarian dysfunction seen at about 75% of women of childbearing age. So this is of concern um, in this population of younger females, but it resolved in three quarters of the women upon stopping. However, that other quarter experienced premature menopause. So we're still trying to watch this very closely to see um, if there are other factors that play into this. There is another investigational oral gamma secretase inhibitor. It's AL-102, so it's still going by its uh, its numbers and letters. Uh, Phase 2 data has only been presented in abstract form, but the 1.2 milligram dose demonstrated an 83% partial response um, and had similar adverse effects such as nausea, dry skin, alopecia again. Unfortunately, the ovarian dysfunction seems to be a class effect as it's seen with AL-102 as well. Um, And there is a phase 3 study currently enrolling patients at that 1.2 milligram dose, um, and we're looking very forward to seeing more results of that.
0: Wow, that's a lot of data. So for a rare tumor, it's amazing that there's evidence for so many therapies off-label. Great for our patients, right? But Christy, inquiring minds want to know, what would you pick? How do you decide what's the best treatment for your desmoid tumor patient that needs systemic therapy?
2: We usually initiate therapy once a patient um, has shown to have progressing disease on two consecutive scans or or if there's a significant increase in their symptom burden. Um, And many patients can remain in active surveillance for five or more years before initiating any kind of therapy. Um, And of course, surgery can be done at any time if the patient is symptomatic, if the tumor has increasing morbidity or if it's near a critical uh, structure such as the head and neck region. But the working group um, guidelines or consensus guidelines from 2020 actually went through all of these therapies and actually really talked about the pros and cons of each um, and in different populations, such as adults and children, to help better help you understand what might be best for that patient.
0: It's worth noting that neurogasostat and Serafinib both carry a preferred NCCN Category 1 recommendation. Thank you so much. I love your honesty and how well you can grasp all the data. Very impressive. So with that, let's switch gears a little bit because you all know I love oncology managed care. So I have to bring us back to that discussion about the financial burden of the treatment that these patients might receive. So in my world, I'm thinking about things like the total cost of care. Then I'm thinking, wow, this is a benign tumor that we might possibly treat with chemotherapy, perhaps even costly targeted agents. So Chrissy, talk to me a little bit more about that financial burden of our recurrent unresectable desmoid tumor patients and the treatments that they receive.
2: Well, first, as you said, we do think of this as a benign tumor. But multiple surgeries can cause major morbidity. Patients have died of bowel perforation due to disease growth in the abdomen. Um, Overall, our health care system is not really built to focus on long-term outcomes, such as maintaining functional limbs or overall quality of life, which would be the best lens in which to view therapies for desmoid tumors. Uh, However, we do what we can. At one year, it has an absolute risk reduction of 13.9% with number needed to treat of 7.2 patients per year. And as there is no consensus for how long to treat these patients or whether we can even stop the therapy in a patient with stable disease, costs could actually grow exponentially if it's taken over multiple years. If we think about the indirect costs of, you know, or surgery, we have to consider the effect on functional outcomes. Is the patient able to continue to walk or do they have decent range of motion in their extremities, their ability to complete activities of daily living, being able to go to school, work, travel, take care of children or aging parents, um, you know, all of these things that's really important for this population. Um, and so there's also the use of pain medications to consider in the setting of chronic pain. So opioid use can be quite high. Um, and one of our goals um, with these patients is to prevent misuse and abuse um, and to really help them use the lowest amount necessary for them to be able to you know, live their lives. Direct costs of surgery are still significant um, and multiple surgeries over a lifetime can add up as well. Especially if you're needing specialists such as orthopedic and neurosurgeons Um, But I think quality of life is very important. In studies, patients reported significantly higher burdens of fatigue, pain, insomnia, and financial difficulties, and anxiety and depression were up to 50% higher than in healthy controls. So we know that we do have to look at our patients as, you know, look at all aspects of our patient.
0: Absolutely. And I love that you highlighted quality of life because that's why we're giving these systemic therapies to help our patients in the long run and help them enjoy what life has to offer. So again, diving more into my world of oncology managed care, Christy, what are some of those managed care strategies that you might see imparted in managing desmoid tumor therapies? And what is the role in the pharmacist with respect to those strategies?
2: Well, Laura, that's a really interesting question. We're not—it's not the usual things that we may be doing of trying to find the 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 least costly um, agent. We're in the managed care strategies um, for managing therapies in rare diseases. Um, we're going to be—you know—we can utilize prior authorization to ensure the patient has high-quality, evidence-based care. Um, quantity fill limits may also help to ensure some safety and correct dosing of medications. The pharmacist's role can in, still encompass a wide range of activity. So, monitoring for medication-related adverse effects and early treatment to prevent further complications is really important. Um, also, educating patients, um, healthcare providers, and payers on these emerging therapies, and really kind of looking at treatment selection. We've talked a lot about the adverse effects um, of fertility issues; those types of things that can, you know, also be a, a major import of major importance to patients. Um, In one study of oral targeted therapies, patients receiving care from an oncology pharmacist reported fewer overall side effects, severe side effects and unscheduled hospitalizations and even rates of death. Um, So it's really important for the pharmacist to be a part of this team. Overall, interprofessional collaboration and communication really optimizes patient safety, quality of life and quality of care.
0: Absolutely. And I would just echo on the payer side, given the high rate of off-label use of these therapies, payers need to stay on top of the latest data so that they don't get in the way of care for therapies that we do have safety and efficacy data to treat desmoid tumors, but they just may be off-label. But we could have eligible coverage support to support that prior authorization. So very important to stay on top of it. And with all that being said, Christy, What is that single most important thing that pharmacists listening today really should take away from your wonderful presentation?
2: Well, first of all, desmoid tumors is a very rare tumor. They really have significant impacts on quality of life in these individuals. So it needs to be weighed and considered when assessing the types of therapy for a given patient. And pharmacists can really play a role in that, looking at the adverse effects, as well as addressing pain um, and you know, maintaining really their best quality of life for the patient um, when they're receiving therapy.
1: Laura and Christy, this was a wonderful podcast. Thank you so much for the incredible amount of detail that you shared with our listeners. Um, Listeners, if you don't know, you can go to PharmacyTimes.org. Once again, that's PharmacyTimes.org to not only listen to uh, the entire library of podcasts that the PTCE team has put together, but also claim your credit, your CE credit. Um, I'm so proud to um, push out this content from PTCE. Dr. Lara Boboltz, you are a rock star. Um, And uh, Christy, we are so excited that you got to come and talk with us about this subject. Please um, make sure you come back and talk with us again and give us uh, any new updates that you think are important for our listeners, pharmacists and pharmacy technicians. If there's anything that we can do for you in supporting you in your pharmacy career, please reach out to the Pharmacy Times Organization or Pharmacy Podcast Network And as always, thank you so much for listening to PTCE Pharmacy Connect.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast. Your feedback is important to us. Please share with us your thoughts on this episode and other topics you'd like to learn about. Go to PharmacyTimes.org forward slash contact and send us a message.